The great comparative literature and mythology professor Joseph Campbell once said, Follow your bliss, and don't be afraid, and doors will open where you did not know they were going to be. The spirit of the podcast is to learn how former Wego Wildcats followed their bliss, and for us to get inspired and learn from their stories. Welcome to Wego Places. I'm your host, Brian Turnbaugh, English teacher at West Chicago High School since 2001. Today's guest is Corey Copen-Lojo from the class of 2004. Corey graduated from the University of Florida Gainesville from a Bachelor of Arts with a major in Criminology, minors in English and Spanish in 2008. Corey continued at Florida State University College of Law, where in the fall of 2011, she was admitted to the Florida Bar. While in law school, Corey was a graduate fellow for the Children in Prison Project for the Public Interest Law Center in Tallahassee, Florida. Corey was also a counsel assisting Vietnam Veterans of America in Washington, D.C. Currently, Corey is an assistant public defender for the First Judicial Circuit in Pensacola, Florida. Links to the PBS documentary, 15 and Life, featuring Corey's work at the Children in Prison Project, can be found in the episode link on Podbean. As a cool side note, Corey was in my first class at West Chicago High School, sophomore honors in 2001. Today we welcome Corrine Copen Lojo, class of 2004. Corey, what do you do? Um, I am a law clerk for a federal magistrate down here in Pensacola, Florida. Um, so what I do is I help um, this magistrate with any sort of research, um, writing orders for various types of um, cases. Typically what I do is um, 1983 civil rights cases for prisoners and then also um, social security. Um, so we'll get a case, um, I'll review it, do any sort of research that needs to be done, I'll draft whatever pleadings need to be drafted, and then I will send them along to the judge for review. So, Corey, when you left West Chicago, you went directly down to Florida to start. Uh, you, you, were, you were both a Gator and a Seminole, which I, I would imagine is a um, – probably is, is, a, is, a rare, is that a rare thing to be? Um, a little bit. Um, you catch a, a, a little bit of, uh, you know, a little bit of uh, controversy with that. But um, there's actually at, at Florida State's law school, there's actually more Gators than there are Seminoles at the law school. <laughs> That's great. Um, so, yeah, so there, there was a pretty big Gator community at Florida State. <laughs> Uh, so you, you went down to Florida and tell us, tell us about your studies down in Florida and what led you to be a, a lawyer. Yeah. So directly from high school, um, came down to Florida. Um, I knew pretty early on in high school that I wanted, uh, some sort of career in helping people. Obviously that needed to be tailored down into something a little more specific. Hmm. Um, so during college, I sort of set my sights on going, to law school, um, you know, taking the pre-law classes, LSAT prep, that sort of thing. Um, and I think it was probably my experience with Guardian of Litem that, that really made me realize that, that I wanted to, to be an advocate. Um, I'm not sure if they have something like Guardian of Litem in Illinois, um, but basically what it is is um, you volunteer on a dependency case. So it's a, um, a family law case where a child has been abused and neglected and you're appointed to represent um, the best interests of the child. And so you um, interview everyone who's involved with the, the kid. Um, you obviously meet with the child <clears throat> um, over a period of time. 
And then you make recommendations to the court on what you think should happen with the case. Um, so it, it was super rewarding. Um, I didn't have, um, or the case that I had wasn't terribly complicated, um, but I just loved um, being able to go to court and, you know, help make a decision that was really going to impact um, a young person's life. So it was then that I just, I really fell in love with advocating for someone that might not be able to stick up for themselves. And so um, knew I wanted to go to law school. Um, when I went, I thought that I wanted to do family law. And then I ended up doing a clinical program in law school and decided that was absolutely not for me. Um, and eventually just through coursework um, and through some other experiences, I, I ended up really enjoying criminal law. Um, uh, I did the children in prison project when I was there and that was just my passion. It was so interesting and it was an area that um, was sort of underrepresented. They're just, they're really, and it's still to this day, but even more so back then, there wasn't just a lot of people, um, you know, rooting for, for criminal justice reform. And so, um, or at least not as many as there should have been, in my opinion. Um, so I just, I really love that area. I still love that area. And that's sort of what led me there was just um, uh, different experiences and a lot of trying out things that, um, you know, that ended up not being for me. That was a big part of it, too. Corey, could you tell us more about your experience uh, with that uh, particular project that you were on? Because, uh, I mean, I will include this in the episode notes, but you were a part of a case that was featured in a PBS documentary, 14 to Life, and that was probably one of the more powerful documentaries that I've seen uh, in recent years. It, could you tell us about that particular case? Sure. Um, so the Children in Prison Project is a clinical program at Florida State. Um, it's run by uh, Professor Paolo Nino. He's the um, director of that project. And what it does is it um, advocates for children who have been sentenced as adults. So um, there's no question of guilt or innocence. Um, most people have heard of the Innocence Project. Um, so all of these children have, have done what they've been accused of, of doing, um, but they, instead of being sentenced in the juvenile system, they were brought up to the big leagues for whatever reason and sentenced as adults, and usually quite harshly. Um, so the program sought to advocate both for them individually, so trying to help them out with their specific cases, and then also through legislative reform. So trying to get Florida lawmakers to um, change the way they do things. You know, so um, in Florida, it's, it's, for example, it's up to the prosecutor um, as to whether or not the child is um, charged and um, tried and sentenced in juvenile court or adult court. Um, most other states have come to their senses and realized that that's probably not the best way to do things, um, but that's how they do things down here. And so um, that was just one aspect of the Children in Prison Project. Um, the case that I worked most uh, most on was uh, the case of Kenneth Young. Um, his case, um, just a little bit about the facts, I could go on about this case no, for a long do. time. <laughs> but um, just to give you kind of a brief about it, um, he so he was 14, just turning 15, um, and he was involved in a series of armed robberies. Um, so pretty serious crime, um, but very young, and it was also at the direction of a much much older individual um, who also happened to be his mom's drug dealer. Um, so this this other individual, his name was Jacques Bethia, um, approaches Kenneth, says, you know, essentially 
uh, you know, your mom owes me money and to work off her debt, you're going to be helping me out with um, these various crimes. So Jacques was, was the, obviously the leader. I, I don't, I don't think most people um, would deny that. You know, he, he was the one who had the firearm, was directing everybody as when, on what to do while they were committing the crimes. Kenneth was usually in charge of, you know, dismantling video surveillance and collecting the money. Um, so after about, um, I think it was a month and a half of, of and several different robberies, they finally get caught. Um, Kenneth uh, is, again, he's 14, turning 15. Um Mom at that point is um, really suffering from um, bad addiction problems, so she's not very present during his criminal proceedings. And um, he ends up being, he goes to trial on some of his cases, um, I think all four of his cases that were in Tampa, he goes to trial on them, gets found guilty, and he was sentenced to consecutive life sentences. So that's serving one life sentence and then another on top of that, another on top of that, another on top of that. Um, so he, um, again, just, just a child, he was, um, acting at the discretion of an adult and through a series of lapses in our system, he was given, um, you know, the ultimate penalty aside from the death penalty. Um, and so when, when I met Kenneth, this, so he, he had been in about, um, gosh, it must've been probably about 15 years when I had, when I had finally met him, um, and so we, we tried to help him in a number of different ways through um, his appeals at that point were exhausted. So that wasn't an option. Um, but we did try for executive clemency, which is basically getting the governor to, to pardon him. Um, and then ultimately, his case um, was set for a resentencing hearing um, that came about because of a several Supreme Court cases. Um, that basically said you can't sentence juveniles to life without parole. Um, and so Kenneth was, was um, he was given a second chance, but he, um, I don't know that you, I would really count it as a second chance. Um, he was given a hearing um, where we were allowed to present all the mitigating evidence that we could think of. Um, and then the judge did resentence him, but um, it was, was not a, a favorable outcome <laughs> in our no, opinion. No. Yeah. It was, it was a very powerful documentary and uh, you could see how methodical and passionate you were in your, in your work to uh, find a better outcome for Kenneth. What, what if once you were, you're working on that case, what was, what were you doing after that? Um, so I started working on his case while I was in law school doing the project as a clinical. And then the resentencing hearing was actually um, when I was working as a graduate fellow. So I had graduated law school and passed the bar and I stayed on um, as a fellow to help out with the project. And most of that was um, consumed with Kenneth's case because it was, um, it, you know, it was such a big case for us. Um, so after that, after my fellowship ended, um, I moved up to Washington, D.C. Um, with my then fiance. And then um, I started working for a firm that contracted me out to a nonprofit um, called Vietnam Veterans of America. And with them, um, so sort of switching gears away from criminal law for a little bit. Um, but yeah, but with them, I was able to help veterans with their um their service-connected disability compensation. So, essentially, if you um, you know if you have some sort of disability, mental or physical, 
um, you know, you're entitled to medical benefits and possibly a monthly benefit. Um, and if you feel as though what you're getting isn't fair, um, you can appeal that. And that's what we would help help them with. So you you finished uh, your work at the firm there. And then what was the next step for you after that? After um, I was, well, we moved to Pensacola. That's, that's why I left. We moved down to Pensacola, Florida. And there um, I, I started at the public defender's office here. Um, a lot of people tend to, public defenders sort of get a bad name. And a lot of people think that you go to a public defender's office because you can't really find work anywhere else. But it's actually the only place I applied and really the only place I wanted to be when I first moved here. Um, it's, it's such interesting work. It's impactful work. Um, it's very stressful work, um, but um, that's where I was for uh, the past uh, four and a half years before I left in November. Now, what would be some of the struggles that you say that occur as a, as a public defender? This has been something that's been brought up uh, in the news a lot recently. What was your experience there that would have made it more um, stressful or the struggles? The numbers in, term, in terms of the amount of cases that, um, that you need to be taking um, are, I, I would say, lower in our county than in other counties. So I, I typically use like New Orleans as an example because they are just so overburdened and they cannot keep um, a, a staff, um, which, you know, if you have a high turnover, that just, that just complicates things even more. Um, so just the, the caseload is probably the number one um, burden for public defenders everywhere. And even though our numbers were lower here, it's, it's still a hindrance, you know, because you just, you, it's, it's, I don't want to say it's impossible, but it's very hard to consistently represent every single case well over a long period of time. Um, when I first started, um, I, you know, I was, I was hungry, I was excited. And so I didn't mind staying late and coming in on the weekends. Um, you know, I, I felt good about what I was doing. And, um, after a while, you know, I started a family and so it, it, it can get, it gets to be too much. It, you start to stretch yourself then. And, um, for me, um, if I felt, you know, it was really hard to, to feel like I was doing a good job when, um, my time was being divided so much. So, um, that was, that's probably the hardest struggle is just, uh, the caseload. Um, the stress of it is probably, is probably second. Um, it's a really important job. What excites you now still about being a lawyer? I still just, I really enjoy, um, the idea of being, being able to help somebody. Um, being, being an advocate is just whether, whether written or spoken, I mean, to be able to speak up for somebody who is in a vulnerable situation or who for one reason or another is not able to stand up for themselves is just, it's a wonderful feeling to be able to help them out like that. Um, so that, that's still what really excites me about being an attorney. Um, Corey, you've been yeah. so generous with your time. I was wondering if you could leave us with any tips for success or words of wisdom. Um, I would say for tips for, for success I would say just try it as, as many things as you possibly can. Um, so many of my experiences, uh, I, I value them not because I, 
you know, that's what I ended up doing with my career, but I value them because they, they taught me that that's what I did not want to do with my career. And without those experiences, I wouldn't have been led on, on the path that I am now to figure out what I really liked and, and what I'm really passionate about. Um, and for those who are considering law school, um, the one thing I can say is I, I'm one of the few weirdos who actually really enjoyed law school. It was super interesting to me and super challenging. Um, but if you are thinking about law school, my, my advice to you is do not go if it just because you think you're going to make tons of money. <laughs> um, most of my attorney friends, I mean, you know, they're not struggling, but um, it's it's not it's not the route to go um, if, if that's that's that, that's your reasoning. Um, if, if you want to go, it's because it's interesting to you and um, you have a specific area in mind that, that you'd like to go in. Um, but I, I just I hope that through your experiences that, you know, the students, you can find your That's so great. Way. And then, yeah, you know, I have to thank you, uh, Corey, because I want to say the summer of 2002, when Mr. Colin and I decided to have the modern media class for some crazy reason, you agreed to show up with a bunch of other crazy freshmen, sophomore, juniors to take our modern media class. And that really, because you did that, it allowed Mr. Colin and I to collaborate and create lesson plans and really put my career on a different trajectory to be a better teacher in terms of thinking about media literacy and all of those things. And I, I really think it's possible I would have found it at some other point, but I think because of just that one little nudge that you agreed to sign up to take that summer school class and we got the numbers to run it, um, it just really accelerated in, in so many ways my intellectual and professional um, uh, interest because it was you, Kenny, was Krista in that class? I'm trying to remember who else was in yeah, and and uh, Brad yeah, and some yeah. of those other uh, yeah. students, you know, be, you know, we needed every one of you to get the, beyond that threshold, and it really, uh, it really accelerated so much <laughs> of what was my professional and intellectual curiosity, because uh, otherwise it, it would it may it would have maybe happened, but a little bit later on, but because of that happening, I'm, I'm, I'm so uh, I don't think I ever. <laughs> it took a while for me to become more of an adult to look back and like, wow, without those kids, I wouldn't have been able to do this thing that I loved that much more within my niche of teaching. So, uh, yeah, thank you for that. <laughs> well, of course, I mean, um, all of all of your classes between you and Mr. Colin, I I credit I um my underdog uh, take on things (laughs) throughout my life. I mean, so being being a a contrarian and um, I, I owe that to you both. So thank you. That's great. Corey, thank you so much and good luck. And maybe we'll do this again in a couple of years. Okay. Thank you so much for having me and good luck to everybody. Thanks for listening to We Go Places. If you know of a great guest for this podcast, send me an email at b-t-u-r-n-b-a-u-g-h at d94.org. Music provided by Joe Villacat.